Brandy Grissom, former Texas Tribune managing editor and current LA Times Enterprise editor. Y'all, the land of sunny, mild days, one million Priuses, and government mandated yoga isn't as bad as Governor Perry makes it out to be. But I sure do miss Texas barbecue, Lone Star politics, and of course, the Tribcast. So listen up, y'all. Here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you, Brandy Grissom. This is your host, Emily Ramshaw, filling in hopefully permanently for Reeve Hamilton. I like your hair better. Yeah, than his thanks. Hair. I think he's back on yet another. I'm in charge here. I think he's I back on yet another hair, family oh, cruise. Right. She's the Al Haig of the podcast. That's right. Exactly. Oh, cripes. Do you know who Al Haig is, Emily? <laughs> yes, Evan. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, all right. Give Spe- you $5 back. <laughs> Give me the $5 Speaking back. Speaking of people who are too old to mention, uh, I'm here to also introduce CEO and editor-in-chief wow. Evan Smith. First of all, that violated the employee handbook. Second of all, apparently Brandy is also being given government-mandated uh, downers. Listen to her. Was she ever that calm when she was here? She sounds a little depressed, if you ask me. I think she misses us. All right. Uh, moving on, executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And uh, the golden-voiced, ruddy-cheeked, warbler, <laughs> senior political reporter. Wayman's favorite Jay- cousin. <laughs> yeah. Jay Root. Hello. We're all, all right. much older than you. That's the point you were making? It's true, by like decades. Jay knew me when I was in pigtails. Mm-hmm. Did you babysit for her? No. I, There's we, some other story, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, it's a long story. He I'll, came we'll, to we'll, Thanksgiving. It's okay, we have time. <laughs> he came to Thanksgiving when I was a small child. All right. Um, the big news this week, obviously, was the release of Wendy Davis's memoir, uh, which revealed some uh, pretty interesting stories from her past. Who wants to kick us off and tell us what we learned? I just thought it was really unusual and maybe even unprecedented. I mean, have we had other candidates that have talked about having an abortion before? Probably not in this way um, and this publicly um, and with a book to boot. So what so what did she actually reveal? Well, she revealed that there were two terminated pregnancies. One was an ectopic pres- uh, pregnancy. Um, pregnancy and um, that's really technically an abortion, but as a lot of people pointed out, it's not uh, really an abortion. They, they, right, they, that's they, a, te- they a pregnancy always, that's never going to go to term. It's never going to go to term. And then, and then she had uh, a second abortion in 1997 um, and it was uh, there was a, a, a really horrible uh, brain abnormality, um, and it was a really gut wrenching passage in her book. I mean, I, I thought it was riveting writing, actually, in the, those several pages when she talked about that. Um, and it's, it's a very very personal story. I mean, what what impact is it going to have? Um, you know, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, I, I think it's it's certainly a talker. She's been all over the TV and radio and everywhere else. Um, but I don't see that it's changed the dynamics of this so, race. So I actually just looked up what I thought I remembered turns out to be right. It's not unprecedented. In fact, in this very campaign cycle, Lucy Flores, who is the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in Nevada, state assemblywoman, with Letitia Vandepute, I believe the only other prominent Latina running for statewide office in the whole country this cycle as a Democrat, um, revealed during this campaign that she had had an abortion when she was 16. Mm-hmm. The difference is that Lucy Flores wasn't necessarily associated with that issue. Right. 
and wasn't necessarily, at least in the minds of some, wrestling with how close to run to or how far to run away from that issue as a matter of the of the campaign and of politics. Mm -hmm. So it's not unprecedented that a candidate might talk about such stuff in the way that a generation ago you had candidates finally talking about their experience with drugs. Now you have candidates being ever more personally revealing in the course of their campaigns. The, 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 the issue here, Jay, I think, is that people are saying, well, she chose to talk about it now, two months before the election, didn't talk about it during the filibuster, though she says in the book and has said on TV, Rachel Maddow, as we sit here last night, that she considered talking about it during the filibuster. Didn't talk about it then. Didn't want it to be about her. Didn't she want said it when she was her. filibustering, right, she wanted to tell other women's stories and not be But the what's, I think, attention. been as interesting as her decision, which we can talk about as a matter of politics, good, bad, indifferent, has been the reaction to it. This campaign, as it relates to this issue, not only this issue, but I want to say specifically on this issue, has been one of the most um, difficult to watch and to endure as a spectator because the, the, the language, the rhetoric has been so um, outsized on both sides. You know, th- th- this may not be the most mean-spirited, personally mean-spirited campaign um, that we've witnessed. I don't think this one's even competitive on that scale. But but I'll tell you, it is certainly it it registers on the on the on the scale, Richter scale somewhere. Um, I mean, with abortion, Barbie, and all of that. Well, you know, the suggestion that somehow she is the the suggestion that somehow this she she is politicizing her abortion story to me. Well, well, let's. Yeah, I, I mean, know. let's talk about that for a moment. I don't know. Because the the reveal of this information came in September, right before sixty days out an election. Right uh, now, I mean, you can say this is part of her life story, and she and maybe the book launch was really the, the a political move. See, I versus... think the I think the question is to talk about the book. I mean, to my mind, the question that I have about the politicization of this is the book. But you know. If you've had a, an abortion or if you've had a miscarriage or if you've had some uh, – you lost a child or something, you know, that that's some tough stuff. And I, I – We're having we're having a bio campaign. Where, where is the line? Right? Well, where, what, what, is, what, is, what is fair? Well, well, I thought the, what the was can- interesting was when she said on MSNBC, you know, I didn't want it to be about me, but she does want it to be about her now. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think that's that's what's interesting. And that's the whole reveal of the bio. And this follows a week where we saw, you know, a Greg Abbott ad that came out featuring him, you know, in his wheelchair, soaked in sweat, right. you know, rolling his way up, you know, what looked eight, like eight, I think it was supposed to be eight, right. eight, eight stories of, of a parking garage, you know, how he overcame adversity. Th- that launches the same week. We have her book coming out telling this incredibly that's gut-wrenching story. The, the yeah, politics, the politics then, of the two though, candidates are pretty well established here. Yeah. You know, that one's a Republican, you know, check, 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 check all the boxes. This one's a Democrat. Check, 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 check. And so the candidacies are being waged or this campaign is being waged on biographies. And, you know, I was thinking about this, you know, writing uh, – how do, how do we write about this? And, mm-hmm. the, and the first idea I had is still sort of baking in there is that, you know, they're both talking about things that the other campaign will not attack them for. They're both – you know, she's not going to talk – she's not going to she's not going to talk about his wheelchair. He's not going to talk about her abortions. No, it's but the just, Republicans will. No, no, that's the difference. Well, well – right. Maybe I mean there. You know, if you look at if you look at Twitter and sort of the you know, the troll conversation out there on both of them. You know, they've both had these sort of episodes of you know, stand with Greg was a big thing for a while. Well, I've and seen the, I've seen some comments was a big too. Thing for a while, right? It's, it's this really awkward yeah. space. But we're talking about personal biographies and personal stories, and you know empathetic things for politicians whose whose politics are pretty well known. They're not really 
litigating this on the I, I disagree that it's been equivalent. I don't think that the Democrats have – I mean, some have, and I don't particularly like it. Some have uh, uh, have taken his disability, his, his biography, uh, uh, to a place it shouldn't be. Some have. Right. I think that it has overwhelmingly been more the case that the other side has felt very comfortable uh, attacking her and attacking the abortion issue – in a way that I think is not equivalent. Yeah, Hers and, is tied to an issue in a way that his is not. Hers is tied to a vote and a, and, a, and, a, and a debate in the Senate and in the legislature in a way that his is not. We haven't debated that. Well, now, when you go back, though, to the whole issue of his disability and how it happened and the lawsuit right. that he waged against the homeowner, of, a, good you know, point. a tree hit him. I mean, that at the tort time reform. that that came out, that was, it was all about tort reform. Right. And there were stories at the beginning of this campaign, but they've gone away. They, they have gone away, but, um, you know, that, that was actually tied to an issue, and the issue was tort reform and whether or not that would have impacted his settlement and whether or not the courts are a lot less friendly to that kind of a complaint uh, today. So that that was actually an issue. I but think the it's Davis interesting. The campaign hasn't made an issue of no, tort they reform. Haven't. And, you know, they, no. they could have elected to do that. They haven't. Look, I come back to the idea that this is about the book. I and mean, you can argue about the wisdom of it politically, but it's not a new concept. Can, candidates for high office write books, full stop. They usually don't do the it. The timing of it is interesting. Yeah, they usually don't do it 60 days before an election. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the question is, let's say that it's, it's, it's unusual. It's not unprecedented that candidates have written books during or had books be published, biographical books during campaigns. They just generally have better fonts. Okay, and they have better fonts. That's not a very good font on that cover. And the photo looks a little photo. It looks a little photoshopped. Maybe it wasn't photoshopped. The the head on the neck looks a little odd to me. A new controversy. This is Ann Richards on the motorcycle. Don't you have have some experience with putting people's heads on things? Let me say something. (laughs) When it comes to putting the heads of potential Democratic governors on the necks of other people's bodies, I am the LeBron James of of Photoshop as far as that goes. I understand. Just getting that. We have history here, but but this this outrage over the over her candidacy being somehow promoted by the book and this question of whether there's an ethics violation in this? Well, I don't know if there's an ethics violation. And, and really explain the, what you're talking about n- here. None of this bothers Give me. Give the background on... The ethics question here is whether she is promoting a book in a way that benefits her candidacy and whether that ought to be registered in campaign finance and whether that ought to be you know reflected in campaign you're finance. You're saying it should be an in-kind so, contribution? Right. right. So, so you know, like there's, a, there's a moment in uh, his races where Dan Patrick has pulled himself off the radio, so he's not promoting his campaign, so the radio station's not making an in-kind contribution. There's a moment when Fred Brown was in the Texas House. He was a BMW dealer in Bryan where he stopped doing the commercials for Fred Brown BMW, although somebody else kept saying Fred Brown, Fred Brown on the air, another thing. But, you know, so there's, a, there's, a, there's actually sort of a legitimate legal question in there. If you're releasing a book 60 days before an election and it's about you and it's an election that's being waged, I would argue, on biography, I would say that's probably part of your campaign. And there's probably a legitimate question about whether that ought to be reflected in campaign finance. But that said, I can't see why Greg Abbott is making a complaint that basically increases the amount of airtime that she gets for the yeah, book. That, so that, 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 was strange to, that was strange to me because, first of all, you know, the Ethics com- Commission moves at a glacial pace. They're never going to – I don't think they're going to get to this before the election, are they? I, I would be very well, look surprised Look at how long all this Michael Quinn Sullivan stuff yeah, is just, dragged on. Why can't the just, Davis campaign just, just, just uh, um, calculate the expected value of the promotional benefit of the book tour, well, so there's, put it in the campaign financial well, reports, and move on? There are things like this. Then they'd have to prove corporate that, contribution. Right, you can't have a corporate – Corporate contribution. Does her campaign? Does her campaign staff staff the book signings? 
I mean, there's all these questions like that. And you can, you know, if you're a lawyer and you love ethics law, it's, you know, go have a party. But, you know, do they get it solved before November 4th? Well, I, but, yeah. but I mean, you know, if the, so. when, when the AG and the governor, when they do things in their official role and they have, I mean, there's all kinds of mixing what that was, goes what on was today. Fed up? Right. Ross was asking that yesterday. What w- I mean, where does Fed Up fall yeah, in this? Fed Up wasn't exactly like manga Rick or, Perry's you know, like, like a. Uh, right. You know, some uh, like a sports book. Fed well, up, and where's the where's the point to the president? Where's campaign, the state right? expenditure on DPS details in Iowa? Right. I mean, you know, there's yeah, all well, kinds they, of there's yeah, all kinds of questions. Whose like car is he riding around in when he goes to Iowa, and New Hampshire? Who who's paying for the gas? Is mm-hmm. that DPS paying for the gas? I mean, you know, it, it, you get to a lot of these things, and you can sort of split hairs on it. Yeah. I I, I kind of think as a legal matter. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll be surprised. I mean. You, Ross always says, "Don't try to predict the future," and and I I'm not going to try to predict the future here. But I predicted that. <laughs> but it it just it, you know as a in ter- this was a sort of a flash in the pan moment where it's like okay we're gonna we're gonna make a little complaint and then we don't hear about it until after the election. But there's also I would say Jay the second part of this the second half of this is the substantive question about whether abortion as a topic of conversation at this stage of the governor's race is a help or a hurt to her, leaving aside the question of it being abortions that she has some personal relationship to or experience with. R- Ross and I have had an ongoing conversation for the better part of the last year over whether the strategy of the Davis campaign ought to run toward or run away from this issue. And arguably, if you look at where she is in the polls right now, the Democrats will tell you that the race is still close and all that, but the, at the end of the day, she's sort of where Democrats are in governor's races of late. You could ask legitimately a question as to whether if she ran more toward this issue from the very beginning um, and talked more about it, would she be worse or better or the same in the polls? And It's, it's kind of the argument, you know, when, good, when your question. supporters were the most excited, what were the most excited – what were they most excited about? What were you talking about? Shouldn't you go back to that? That's that's one conversation. Well, the other one is, you know, she has to broaden the issue set in order to be viable for other um, constituencies that she has to get in order to win an election. Well, are you broadening the issue set or are you just mudding the water about what your campaign is all about? Because they were running ads about how Greg Abbott's this horrible insider and now all of a sudden it's her biography again. So but, right, but they, right, you know. But they knew – what's interesting about this is that they knew this was going to come full circle and they knew when it was going to come full circle because the book launch has been planned for a long time. So the beginning of this campaign really kicks off with her being, you know, in sort of the national limelight over the issue of abortion. And then she pulls back and pulls away from it and everybody writes all these stories. Oh, Wendy Davis is not really embracing this issue that took her to the forefront. She knows in the back of her head what's coming in September, a book launch where the biggest headlines are going to be around her personal narrative – and abortion. And so now she's sort of um, this whole conversation has really gone in a full circle. And here we are headed into an election and everybody's talking about abortion again. It's really sort of an interesting dynamic campaign dynamic. As you get closer to Election Day, you're introducing yourself to bigger and bigger audiences. You know, there's a bunch of us who pay attention like two years out, you know, who are already talking about who's going to run after 2016 for president, you know, for the 2020 election. Nerds. And so you talk to nerds first, and then you talk to a circle outside of that, and then a circle outside of that. But when you get to this point in the election, you're actually talking to people who don't pay attention all the time, but who vote. So now you're reintroducing yourself. So the most charitable way to talk about all of the rebooting that the Davis campaign has done over the last, you know, I guess, over the 16 to 18 month period between the bottle rocket of that filibuster 
and Election Day on November 4th is that she's reintroducing herself each time to another audience. And so here we are reintroducing yourself or fully re- fully introducing yourself to the audience that's actually going to vote. So now we're back to square one. Right. Well, Jay, are there any other takeaways from this book other than the pregnancy termination, which has gotten obviously the most attention? I mean, there were there were a lot of little nuggets in there. I thought it was interesting that she said she got a chilly reception from in the in the Senate lounge from the from her Republicans. I mean, just inside the the, the inside chatter about that has been interesting. I think the kids in the garage was. Oh, that was unbelievable. I mean, basically, she survived an attempted murder-suicide, basically. That by her, her mother. By her mother. That, right. Yeah, she that said was, the mother basically put the kids in the trunk of the car. In the car, trunk of the car. Was preparing to start the engine, you right. know, and then a neighbor who she calls basically like some angel from heaven, you know, some man knocked on the door to check on her, and, you know, she took the kids out. Um, but her mother, I guess, told her this story much later, which is what a traumatic thing yeah, to that, that learn. Yeah, that was— I don't know. Yeah, that, that that's something that was really a huge reveal, I thought, that yeah. it didn't get a whole lot of attention. But mm-hmm. if it hadn't been for the abortion, that would have gotten a lot of attention, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I well, that's right. speaking about uh, uh, other big reveals, Jay, you had a very interesting story this week about a new uh, green job for one of Perry and George W. Bush's recent— the jolly green giant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, advisors. Why don't you fill us in? Uh, the, the the funniest comment that I got uh, on that and, and uh, what's that was uh, on the Joe Albaugh story was somebody said that he looked like Teddy Roosevelt on acid <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. So what exactly is Joe Albaugh up to? These Joe days? Albaugh, who as we know is the former FEMA director, um, part of the Bush Triangle with George Carl W. Bush's chief of staff, what right. the former, he, he, former head of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Troopers, is that right? right? Law and order Texas? guy, right. law and order guy, conservative. Right. Republican, right? Conservative Republican has a fairly significant investment and is a member, uh, a board member of a Can Labs, which is a cannabis testing laboratory company. Um, and I thought Are it was hiring man. <laughs> I thought it was really counterintuitive. I'm like Joe, this just doesn't seem to fit. Um, and I called Joe, and he very graciously gave me an interview about it. Um, his wife has has battled so cancer. Words, he's, he got high and forgot yeah. about that yeah. book you wrote, which is yeah. why he talked to you. Oops. Well, yeah, there was a couple of moments when we got on the phone that I, I thought that maybe we we weren't going to be talking much longer. But he he was very gracious about it, gave me an interview, and he talked about his wife Diane, who has struggled with cancer, um, and he's a a, belie- a true believer in the medicinal value of marijuana. He said made it very clear that he's not in favor of recreational use, although this company does test for it doesn't matter whether it's recreational use or whatever this company is positioning itself to be a player in in the booming marijuana industry and to me what what my takeaway from it is you know this isn't your dad's uh marijuana industry you know um, well, I don't know. You don't know my dad. Well, that's that's <laughs> no, probably there's true. no VW yeah, vans it's, it's in your dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not my dad's marijuana <laughs> industry. I can tell you that. Um, but it's just it just shows how it's it's sort of going mainstream that people like Joe Albaugh are associating with. The it. best part of the story, as I told you, was all the opportunities to make jokes. Weed him and reap. Weed him and, and reap. And, yeah. This is why Rick <laughs> Perry couldn't remember the third yeah. thing. Right. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of stuff you can say about this. And it's it's like a great it's just a great who would have expected 
this to ever happen kind of yeah. story. I mean, right? do we look to the Republican consultants to see the way the party is sort of heading behind the scenes? I mean, you know, all right, Joe Alba suddenly all right with medicinal marijuana. You know, we've seen other Republican consultants who have joined groups, you know, gay marriage, pro-gay marriage. What What is this signal and how far there's apart? A, there's yeah. a big libertarian streak in the Republican Party, and there always has been. And there's always, you know, there's a default among a lot of people in the Republican Party for individual rights. And I get to do what I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt you. And, you know, um, you can, but the, if, but if you look at it in a certain way, you know, um, marijuana goes that way. Gay rights goes that way. You know, there's a bunch of issues like that, that, you know, when they've broken toward what that looks initially like a democratic position, it's been more of a libertarian. But the thing. tension in the party, interestingly, has been, we want the government out of our lives, except where we don't. Right. right? So it's been, we want the government out of our lives, but you know, same-sex relations. Well, it's the social conservatives doors, on no. one hand and the libertarian conservatives right. on the other, people right? People on the, on, the, on the pro-choice side would say we want the government to have our lives except there. What I think is also happening here, there's an ideological change that it's shifting from pure conservative to a little bit more libertarian tinge, and that's interesting. But I also think it's a generational issue. Younger Republicans, younger conservatives have tended to be more – agnostic on social issues. Not all of them, certainly, and I'm sure now that having said that, someone's going to send poll data saying, no, young people are overwhelmingly pro-life. But I do think that actually on a certain number of these issues, and same-sex right. marriage and marijuana, legalization or decriminalization would be two, same-sex and, and marijuana, there seems to be more of, an un, of a kind of um, live-and-let-live attitude among younger people well, than the, older people. And the first guy in the Perry camp that started talking about this in a sort of non-traditional way was Rick Perry, who said, you know, we shouldn't be throwing people into prison for life right. for one, you know, marijuana cigarette. And that's where, you know, the criminal justice, ref this is sort of side sidebar a little bit, but the criminal justice reform conversation has gotten really interesting in this country. Mm -hmm. It is a place where the left and the right have kind of come Coming around together. to meet right. so that you have someone like Mark Levin at the Texas Public Policy Foundation who has emerged as, you know, from, you know, this is the conservative think tank that has driven so much of the policy thinking and decision-making in the state for the last decade or more, right. he has become nationally just celebrated by Politico, in fact, as one of the the sort of deepest thinkers on how to reform criminal justice in ways that you wouldn't necessarily associate historically with a law and order party. Right. Although the, it's the fiscal conservative party, which is suddenly, you know, the law and order party has shifted to the party that really wants to cut costs at all costs. And the only way you can really do that is by keeping people out of prison. Well, and this is a pendulum. I mean, you know, every, you know, every 20 years or so we become, you know, um, really, really tough on crime, you know, lock them away and throw, you know, kill them all and let God sort it out. On one, and then you go back and you say, wow, our prisons are really overcrowded. This is really expensive. And they start talking about rehabilitation, and, and we're in that part of the cycle. Right. Well, in the last few minutes here, Ross, can you give us an update on last night's election, uh, Senate election? Uh, Charles Perry, who is a state rep from uh, Lubbock, who was elected to the House in the 2010 Tea Party wave, um, beat Delwyn Jones that year, was elected to the Texas Senate last night, succeeding. Robert Duncan, who's now the chancellor at Texas Tech University. Uh, it's a 51-county district. 20% of the counties in Texas are in this district almost. Wow. Um, and um, he won more than 50% of the vote in 42 of those counties. He won 54% um, overall. Um, he shellacked them. Uh, the number two finisher was Jody Arrington, who was a more business-like, uh, you know, sort of Chamber of Commerce candidate. Former, former vice chancellor at Tech. 
Uh, right, and he, a former uh, aide to uh, Bush and, you know, kind of the same. You know, this has happened before in Lubbock. There was a guy, uh, Mark Griffin, who ran a couple of years ago against John Frulo in that 2010 election, and it was the same sort of setup. Here's the establishment candidate. Here's the populist candidate. Populist candidate won. This is a bigger district. Populist by which you mean Tea Party, not well, Cesar Chavez. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's also, it's we, not we just, it's, 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 it, but it's not just, it's not just, um, well, they had it first. You know, the the conservatives had it first. You know, this is a thing, you know, it's not just the Tea Party financial stuff. It's also the, you know, the guys at the country club shouldn't be running this party. We should be running the party, you know. So think, think populist about this. in it that sense. It was a six-candidate special election. Right. One Democrat. One Libertarian. One Libertarian, four Republicans. Right. And he got 54% of the vote overall to win. That is significant. And the Republicans in that six-candidate race Brandon got 86% Creighton, of the right. vote. You Brandon, know, the Brandon Repu- Creighton the, couldn't win his election without a special. Right. Right? right. I'm thinking back to the me? last time this – without a runoff, yeah. pardon me. The, the last time this has happened – well, I don't know that it's the last time, but you know who I'm remind, reminded of here? I'm reminded of, of one Dan Patrick, who in that special election against – you know. Peggy Hamrick, or as we all called her up until Election Day, Senator Peggy Hamrick, for John Lindsay's seat back in 06. It was Dan Patrick, Joe Nixon, Peggy Hamrick, Mark Ellis, the city council member from Houston. And Dan Patrick won that race with 63 percent, no runoff. You know, it's it's an accomplishment for Perry to have done this. Let's acknowledge it. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing I would point out just in that same realm um, in terms of being organized and being in front of everybody, 64 percent of the vote was early. Before election day, and he won sixty percent of the early and vote. Right, he, well, it wasn't sixty, but he shall he shall act him. He won this oh, race. He, he won this race two weeks ago. He did. He won it without a vote being cast so. on election day. Anyway, he's on his way to the Senate. And so the discussion that we've had, Emily, to your point about the significance of this. Pre- I was going to say, I know where this is going. Well, the, makeup of the Senate. Well, and, mm-hmm. and really, just to the point we've made earlier, this is just another another, right? I mean, it's a Charles Perry. It's sort of third verse, same as the first. You know, Van Taylor and. Uh, Paul Bettencourt and Connie Burton, if Connie Burton were to win SD10, and it's, it's Brandon Creighton and possibly Lois Colcorst if Glenn Hager wins and Colcorst ends up being the inheritor of that seat. You're talking about the most conservative Texas Senate of I all time. Think that, I, think, I think that race is going to be interesting. There's a there's a Fort the Bend. The Colcorst race. There's a, well, it's you know that the race for the Hager seat that goes all the way from Fort Bend County up into north of Houston, and we got a regional race on our hands. If there's a candidate from Fort Bend, that's that gets fascinating. So you don't think that the the hidden hand of the uh, of of the Empower Texans, et cetera, et cetera, guys. I think the great thing about politics is that it always bounces. Loving on Lois I think that's doesn't a good necessarily place. make it a. I think I, I think what's interesting is it always bounces. Is it often bounces funny, and that is a prime race for a funny bounce. I think the Enterprise Fund is gone, the Texas Enterprise Fund. So you fund. think one of the upshots of the change in— Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, well, I, I mean, Patrick is is pretty negative on all that stuff, isn't he? I mean, um, just incentives. You know, they, they see it as corporate welfare. I mean, I, I think if it comes up to a debate and it's on the floor, those <laughs> people, they're, they're just like, there's going to be a real rush to, to get rid of giving companies government money. Well, I think we did this just fine without Reeve Hamilton. I, I don't think we need Reeve anymore. He's welcome to go on some boat with the Indigo Girls for about another six months, right? That's fine <laughs> with me. All right. Well, if you have any questions or comments, please email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. Uh, we'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music. Yes, Evan, you look like you have something to say. I'm just wondering, is Brian Teveno doing our intro next week? <laughs> I don't know. Wait and ask Reeve. All right. Uh, on behalf of Evan, Ross, Jay, myself, and our delightful producer, Todd Wiseman, thanks for listening. Texas talking, Texas talking, Texas talking, baby. Texas talking, baby.
I'd rather have a cup of coffee with Hitler.